It's a great benefit to us to be able to have God's word to read, to be able to read twice in a, in a service. And so we're going to turn our attention now to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and hear again the words of our one true and living God. And as I read through this, there's a lot of... Uh, Solomon's doing this thing again where there's these proverbial statements. And it's like we're covering a lot of ground and jumping from one thing to the next. Seems like we're changing gears a lot. Um, that's kind of what I'm here for. <laughs> Hopefully I can help us make sense of this. So as we're reading it, try, try to pay attention. You know, Pick up on what, whatever you will. But we're going to dive into it. We're going to dissect it. Okay? We're going to take it a little bit at a time in bite-sized chunks. But let's go ahead and read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 13. And we're going to read through all of chapter 10. All right? God says, Solomon writes, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're going to be talking about wisdom this morning, we thank you that in your perfect wisdom, you have gathered this particular group of people here this morning, together in this place, to hear from your word. 
Your word, Lord, is to be desired more than gold and is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, your word tells us. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I pray, Father, that that's exactly what it would do to all of us this morning. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us, God, in the way everlasting. You have promised us you would for your name's sake. And we pray expectantly with hope and great assurance that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two major points we have to have picked up on by now. One is that God is the very basis of reality. He is in control and he has a plan. And the second thing is, we can know very little about this plan. And, and we know how it ends, right? But it's all this stuff in, this, in the middle section here that, that confuses us. And so what Solomon instructs us to do over and over again is to enjoy life as the gift of God while we're still here. And the only way to truly enjoy life is to be wise and fear God. Not a God, by the way, not just some God, Okay. Not, not, not just some acknowledgement of some deity or higher power. The God, Yahweh, the God who made man in his own image from the dust of the earth. The, the God that appeared to, to Moses in the burning bush. That God. The one that said, I am that I am. The God that promised Eve in the garden that one day a man would be born of her seed that would save the world. The God who himself became that man in the person of Jesus and died in the place of sinners like us. We fear that God, the only true God. And fear of that God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And there are blessings in this life and the next for those who are wise and fear God. This section we're looking at this morning dives into wise living. And what it looks like, and, and Solomon does that by contrasting the way of the wise and the way of the fool. Solomon's been cataloging all of his observations along the way. And here in verse 13, he says, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seems great to me. He's, he's picked up on something special. This example of wisdom is great. It's big. It's, it's significant. It's, it's meaningful. It's powerful. It's impactful. Why, why does he say that? Why do you think Solomon prefaces this example of wisdom he's observed by saying, it's great? Well, I think one reason is so we'll pay attention, right? But why, why does he want to make sure we don't miss this? I don't think I'm taking too much liberty with the text here by telling you it's because this principle is one that God knows is hard for us to grasp and appreciate and be reminded of, and it is clutch, Wisdom is actually better than might. That's the kind of thing, you know, we say in church, we go, hmm, amen, right? But do you actually believe that? If I, if I had wisdom in one hand and might in the other, which one are you going to choose? And we're in church, don't lie. Okay. You know, maybe you choose wisdom because you know you're supposed to, but you'd be real tempted to choose might, It'd be hard to pass up. But here's the thing. In real life, 
We all know when everything's happening full speed and we're forced to make decisions, we're not faced with an either-or decision. We don't have wisdom and might presented to us side-by-side that way so that we can see that so clearly. We see things that are attractive to us, that seem advantageous to us, things that seem like they will advance us, right? Or if it helps me get ahead or it brings me pleasure or it brings me comfort or influence or recognition, we go for it. We want it. We want might. We tend to think power makes a painful life a playful life. We're inclined to believe that. But Solomon says, God says, wisdom is better than might. He never compares power to gold and silver, does he? He never instructs us to search out for power as for hidden treasure. He does say those things about wisdom because he knows it's better, and so should we. We should know that it's better. He uses this example of a little city that a mighty king comes and flexes all of his military might on, and this poor wise man, by his wisdom, delivers the city. So the guy with no might triumphs over the mighty. But it doesn't end there. He says at the end of verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. And so what we see is that there was no glory in his wisdom. Verse 16, he says, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. Here's the main idea I want you to get this morning and to believe. Because you're inclined to believe all you need is a little more might. You're inclined to believe all you need is a little more might. And y'all listen to me. It is a soul-crushing business to waste your life trying to acquire it and finding that it's always just out of reach. And that when you have it, there's no such thing as enough. It makes you feel small and scared. And God has not made you to be small and scared. Here's the main idea. It's so easy. Mighty fools lose. Mighty fools lose. You need to convince yourself of that, y'all, because it's true. It may not look like it sometimes, but we're not called to live by sight, remember? We're called to live by faith. The goal of our lives as Christians is not to improve our eyesight. It is to be transformed by the renewal of our mind and to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus. Mighty fools lose. Jesus said so, and he proved it. Didn't he? Didn't he prove it? When, when he came to be born a man, to be killed by man in order to rise again to save man, didn't he prove it? I've got two points for you this morning. They're both pretty obvious. Straight out of the text. The advantage of wisdom okay, and the futility of folly. And this is cool because remember, in the beginning, Solomon's been talking about how everything's vanity, everything seems futile. He's showing us now that really if we fear God, and fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1-7, and if we truly want instruction and welcome correction, and we don't despise correction like the fool does, then things just work better. It's the fool who gets frustrated with his work, verses 8-15. through 15. It's the fool who fails other people and ends up with a bad reputation, verse 16. It's the fool whose house falls apart because he's lazy and lacks sense, verse 18. 
but it's the wise man whose work is proven to be productive and of value, not just to himself, but to other people. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor and a good reputation. Wisdom wins. Mighty fools lose. Okay? Looking at chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, we see the, the wise man and the fool, they're complete opposites. They're, they're just complete opposites. One goes to the right, one goes to the left, it says. Can't get more opposite than that. And the word for fool in, in Hebrew is, is kessel, and it's, it's like a way of life. It's not just an insult, right? It is an insult, but it's a way of life. It's, it's going around in ignorance with no skill in living and no desire to learn from people who possess knowledge and skill. The fool lacks sense and doesn't know where he's going. And verse 3 says he walks around telling people he's a fool. Side note, it's Pride Month. Any similarity there? Not only does the fool not try to hide his foolishness and godlessness, he's not even ashamed of it. In fact, he expects recognition for it. Folly is a chronic condition for some. That's clear from Scripture. But it's also a snare that the godly can step into on occasion if they're not careful. We have to be warned. That's the warning in chapter 10, verse 1, about the flies and the perfumer's ointment that makes it stink. You know, a more familiar saying might be one bad apple spoils the bunch. All it takes is a little folly, Solomon says, to outweigh wisdom and honor in your walk with God. So we can point over there at the parades and we can call out sin and rightly identify them as, as fools who despise wisdom and instruction. They are, but Christian, heed these words. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We have to watch how we walk. You're not immune to foolishness and it's dangerous. It is a clear and present danger all the time. And it's easy to forget that. And the reality is the light that you've been given, you're expected to know better and to walk straight. You know why you're expected to walk straight? It's not just because you know better. It's not just because you know better. It's because you have been freed from sin and enabled by the Holy Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. That's why you're expected to walk straight. You're expected to walk straight because God provides what God commands, and he has. And the sacrifice of his son and and the power of his spirit. Verse 2 says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And this isn't, you know, this isn't right and left American politics, right? This isn't, the Bible knows of no such things. That for the Hebrew people, they were a right-handed culture, right? So right was good, left was bad. Right was blessing, left was cursing. So, you know, don't read too much into that. I worked with a guy years ago, by the way. Um, he, he was an atheist. Hated the church. And one of his reasons, he said, he grew up in the church. And one of his reasons he said he hated it was probably one of the dumbest reasons I've ever heard in my life, to be honest with you. It was just silly. But whatever sort of like Christian preschool or, or daycare, something, when he was really young, they, he was left-handed, and they tried to force him to learn to write with his right hand because being left-handed was of the devil. Just, just silly. 
That's, that's ridiculous, right? So don't, don't read into this the wrong way, right? Left-handed people, Jesus loves you, okay? My wife is left-handed. She's one of the godliest women you'll ever meet. I, I, I do like to poke fun at her, though. I sometimes uh, I mess with her and tell her that I'm right-handed and she's wrong-handed. And, and, you know, I mean, clowning around like that's part of what makes marriage fun, you know, or dangerous. Well, she's not here this morning, so if she hears this recording, we'll find out. I'll report back next week. But chapter 10, verse 4, now, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. What's he telling us here? He's telling us, as hard as it is to swallow your pride and stand there and take it, the wise thing to do when you're being railed against is to recognize your stillness can be contagious. If you fight fire with fire, the fire often gets bigger. You think about a scenario where this ruler is an employer, okay? Just bring it home a little bit, hopefully. They have might on their side and you don't. Any situation that fits that. The one I thought of was, was in the case of an employer. And their anger toward you may be warranted or maybe not. Like maybe you messed up, maybe you didn't. But whatever, whatever happened, like they're on your case. They're coming down on you. Here's what wisdom knows. Fools are easily provoked and come out of their frame quickly. A fool who finds himself in that situation loses his composure, loses his temper, and either answers back harshly or storms off in a fit of rage and quits, which profits him nothing, right? That's what a fool does. He just reacts without thinking. What a wise person does is just absorbs the hostility. The New Testament example of this is turn the other cheek, right? Didn't Jesus say that? doesn't mean don't defend yourself, right? That's not really what's in view there. But, you know, somebody gives you a backhanded comment or insult or something like that, or they're, they're coming down on you, don't take offense so easily. Turn the other cheek. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And you say, well, how do I do that? How, how, how would I do that in the moment? Here's how. By remembering who you are and who you belong to. Remembering who you are and who you belong to, knowing God is in charge and fearing him and not man, you can easily recognize this moment is not a defining moment, and so you don't make it one. And then the ruler or employer or whoever, their anger just kind of runs out of gas. It just gets diffused. And then who ends up looking foolish? Not you. Right? That's wisdom, and it's better than might. Mighty fools lose, but wisdom wins. It is an advantage to us in life. In verses 5 through 9, we get the question, well, then why do fools appear to be running things? Right? Why are the fools in charge? We see the contrast between wisdom and folly. We see wisdom good, folly bad. But then we look around, and we see that most of the people who appear to be running the show are all fools. And that's true now, isn't it? Right? Just turn on the news. And don't do that. We'll end up in counseling. It's just don't. Solomon is troubled by this, though, okay? He, that fools are running the show. He gets it, you know? And, and, and he says what we're all thinking. He says, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. That's not fair. 
You know, and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes and other places in the Bible, the subject is brought up about the prosperity of fools. Why do the wicked prosper, right? Psalm 73 echoes the same thing that Solomon has said previously about it ending well for those who trust and fear God and it not ending well for those who don't. Listen to what Psalm 73, verses 16 through 17 says. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. We talked about this last time, right? What, what does God say? We don't just stop at what, what do I see? We, we, we consider what has God said, and God says, yeah, you're going to see a lot of weird stuff that shouldn't happen. <laughs> it, of course rulers should be wise, and they're not. Of course wicked people prosper and rule over the righteous, but it doesn't end that way. See, being reminded of, of God and who he is and thinking with an eternal perspective about things, uh, having a biblical worldview and not a worldly, humanistic worldview, we can see that not all we see is what we get. What we see is not all we get. What we see is not all we get. Where we see justice not being served, we know there will be. The wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. You can take that to the bank. But we said a few weeks ago something about it not only ending well for those who fear God, it goes well with them too. Solomon touches on that again here. He gives us what we could take as a little encouragement. We don't have to wait to see the fruits of wisdom and wise living. Right? He kind of shakes us out of our big picture view where all the fools are in charge and all that kind of stuff and brings us down more into the, the mundane day-to-day -day life kind of stuff and shows us, no, look, there's, there's good here. It goes well for those who are wise and fear the Lord. And what's funny is he gives these illustrations and, and we get a little chuckle. We get a laugh. In verses 8 through 11, he gives us a few examples in these short, snappy little proverbial statements. And if you think on them for a second, they're pretty funny. You know, one, one of them is a picture of a guy who's... Uh, He's trying to chop down a tree with a dull axe, you know? And, and it's not working well, and so what's he do? Just keeps trying harder and harder, getting angrier and angrier, and, and getting more and more frustrated and just cussing and wearing himself out, right? And it says, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Well, what's wisdom in this case? And it's right there in the illustration. You know, stop and sharpen the blade. Make your work count for more. It'll be more efficient, Right? It'd be more profitable for you. It'd be less work on your body. Work smarter, not harder. Right? And then in verse 11, he gives the example of a, a snake charmer. He says, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. And so you imagine this guy, right? And he's trying to, uh, he's trying to capture like a king cobra or something, you know? And so his strategy is corner the snake and just reach down and grab it. And he gets bit. And you're like, dummy, Right? And so then you have this idea of like the snake charmers, a snake whisperer kind of guy, and he knows better than that. He just doesn't reach in there all haphazardly, he doesn't get bit by the snake. So instead what he does is he just, you know, he starts to kind of woo the snake a little bit, spend a little time, capture his attention before he captures his body, right? And he gets him moving so that he can kind of predict which way he's going to go and get him moving in the direction he wants him to so he can reach out at the right time and grab it. That's wisdom. You know, the fool just thinks he can out-hiss the snake and gets bit, and the point of these illustrations that Solomon gives us is that wisdom is better than folly when it comes to living. 
with whatever situation you approach. Even if you're discouraged by the prosperity of fools, you can know there is no advantage in being a fool. The old saying, if you can't beat them, join them, doesn't apply here. Don't throw in the towel on wisdom and say, what's the point? Or why bother? You might see fools do well, but there's no advantage to being a fool. Mighty fools lose. Verses 12 through 14, Solomon narrows in on speech. Often the Bible's instruction is addressing our, our whole person, right? We're to, we're to honor God with what we do, with what we think, and what, with what we say, with our thoughts and words and deeds. And here he narrows it down to speech, our words, the words of the wise and the words of the fool. He says things about how the fool's speech consumes him. You know, he babbles on, usually about himself, claims to know more than anyone, and he likes to hear himself talk. He, he, his talk shows his self-interest. He really sincerely believes he's the most interesting person in the world, and everybody else should be as equally interested in him as he is. Right? By contrast, we see the wise man in verse 12, and his words win him favor. There's something about his words that make people admire his words, but his words are not asking for admiration. His words aren't about him. He doesn't have to speak highly of himself, but he evidently talks about things that matter to people, and people listen, and it's the people's words, not his own, that speak highly of him. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Same idea. A fool brags about himself. He uses words to profit himself. He uses words to profit himself. The wise man profits others with his speech. Verses 16 through 19, Solomon flips us back over into this uh, you know, theme of the, the fools in high places thing again. He contrasts a childish king and princes who feast in the morning when they should be working hard for the people, when they should be preparing plans for battle plans for protection, plans for the care of the people put into his charge, and instead, life's just one big party. They keep waking up every morning to another, another party, another feast, another drunken pleasure fest, right? Solomon says, woe to the land whose rulers are like that. He says, happy is the land with a noble king and princes who feast at the proper time. When's the proper time for feasting? When, when is the proper time for celebration? When the work's done, right? When the battle's been won. Last night at our own dinner table, um, uh, Judah, our fourth son, who's four years old, he got really upset with me because I told him, cookies are for closers, buddy. You know? He didn't finish his dinner, really wanted a cookie, everybody else got one. Cookies are for closers. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to explain to him before the cookies came out. I'm like, now you understand, right? There's going to be cookies in a little bit. You like cookies, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you have to do in order to get a cookie? I have to eat my, eat my hamburger. That's right. You going to eat the hamburger? No. <laughs> no cookie, right? The proper time for feasting and celebrating, the reward comes after the work, right? And even then, the feast is for strength and refreshment and celebration and rejuvenation for these kings and princes and so on and so forth, not for drunkenness and debauchery. The fool believes bread, he says, is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything, verse 19. The wise man understands 
Bread and wine do bring laughter and gladden life, but that's not what they were made for. You see the difference? A wise man knows how to use the gifts God has given him for their intended purposes and how to give God thanks for them. And because he does, he is able to get more enjoyment out of them than the fool. He knows money's good. It's good to get. Get some. And invest it. Save it. Leave an inheritance to your children's children. That's good to do, but it doesn't answer everything. It cannot give you meaning to life. There's tremendous advantage in knowing that. And finally, verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. This is his summary after making these observations about dumb rich people and childish, irresponsible leaders. You see any dumb rich people around lately? See any of those? Any headlines from the Hollywood elite that make you shake your head? How about childish, irresponsible leaders? See any of those? Solomon says, see them. You can recognize foolishness as foolishness. You don't have to pretend it's not foolishness. It's okay to not pretend. But don't curse them. And y'all, I was personally convicted going through this passage. I think there's an implication for all of us that can rightly complain about things that we see, and yet we're tempted to curse. The wise take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not some of them, not on our good days. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The wise not only recognize the sin in others, but their own sin and their continual need to guard their minds and hearts, to guard what they think, what they do, and what they say. And that should give us a sensitivity to those we are tempted to curse for their foolishness, however foolish they may be. The point Solomon makes in verse 20 about not cursing the king in private reminds us of this. The wise recognize what the right, God-honoring thing to do is, and they have a desire to do the right thing, no matter who's looking or who's watching. That honors God. So here's the deal. We look at these verses and see mighty fools lose. Wisdom wins. We're told it's advantageous, but sometimes it doesn't look like it. Wisdom is better than might, but it doesn't always look like it. So here's what we get. There is no glory for you in wisdom under the sun. There's no glory for you. There's no glory for that poor wise man who saved his city from the mighty king. No one remembered him, it says. We do the right thing, y'all, because it's the right thing to do. And it honors God. So don't get hung up on appearances. Don't buy into the idea that you need to win at all costs. Don't be tempted to reach for the the might instead of the wisdom. Wisdom wins. Mighty fools lose. You know, look, when Jesus was hanging helpless on a cross, it sure didn't look like wisdom won, did it? Looked like might won the day that day, didn't it? But then what? Plot twist. 
the wise plan of Almighty God for our salvation included the humiliation of Jesus. And it was glorious. It's one thing, you know, it's one thing to be unkillable. That would be something. It's another thing entirely to be killed and then to come back. Which is more glorious? That's the story we need to keep repeating to ourselves, y'all, that we need to be reminded of because that's the same story we're living in. The one where God himself became a man to die at the hands of his own creatures in order to save them. Our God and his infinite wisdom laid aside his might in order to display it. And the world was saved because of it. The world was one because of that. Wisdom wins. Let's believe it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we, we thank you. God, I pray that you would, you would move us every day to just know how many things we are truly thankful for. Earlier we talked about how uh, Ryan was telling us how we can't, we can't really know anything. We have no definition for things unless we find meaning and purpose in you and in who you are and your character and your revealed will and word for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who enables us to obey. Thank you for grace and mercy when we do not. But let us not look at sin as an opportunity for grace to abound all the more. As Paul said, may it never be. God, give us hearts that want to do the right thing no matter who is watching or who is listening all the time. And God, would you bless us? Would you allow for us to see fruit of that in our lives? We know it is glorifying to you. We know how things end. God, would you bless us and allow for us to be able to see how those things help us day to day, whether it's in our parenting, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our relationships with our families. Help us to see wisdom winning. God, do it this week. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.